Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode number 18 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Latini Creative Solutions, who for over 20 years have been designing, printing, and marketing to help your company look the best and represent exactly what your message is. Specializing in creative solutions that capture your voice and deliver your message. From supporting and energizing an already established brand to developing your company's identity and marketing campaigns, Latini Creative Solutions provides design that is thoughtful, focused, and creatively executed. And they work really hard because that's what they're doing right now, helping to design the new line of Mistress Carrie merchandise which is coming very soon. If you could use their help, find out more at latinicreative.com. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Jumptown Skydiving. We are getting into peak leaf peeping season. Now is the time to go skydiving in New England, and you are running out of time. Jumptown is conveniently located in Orange, Massachusetts, about 70 miles west of Boston. And if you are looking for unbelievable views of the Quabbin Reservoir, this is where you want to go. You can make a tandem skydive reservation any Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, and you will not regret it. I started skydiving there over 20 years ago, and the view is spectacular. There's no better way to commemorate a birthday, anniversary, graduation, retirement. Let's face it, skydiving is awesome all the time. Log on to jumptown.com to get all your questions answered and to book your tandem skydive. I want to take this opportunity to thank all of the people that have already gotten their Mistress Carrie backstage pass. Now, if you don't have one, you can get it really easily. Just go to patreon.com slash Mistress Carrie. The Mistress Carrie backstage pass gives you all kinds of extra access and allows me to kind of lean on you a little bit. Your opinion means a lot as I move this podcast forward. There's exclusive polls, blogs, photos. And once I get the online store up and running, which by the way is going to happen very soon, discounted merchandise for everyone that holds a Mistress Carrie backstage pass. Plus, we're building a great little community. I love the feedback and the interaction, and it's way more personal than just a comment section on Facebook. So if you're looking for more Mistress Carrie in your life, and let's face it, who isn't? Get your Mistress Carrie backstage pass online at patreon.com slash Mistress Carrie. All right, this episode of the podcast was so much fun. I love Brad Arnold from Three Doors Down. I remember when the band broke at WAF, and I have seen the band so many times I can't even count. The band shares my love of the military and our service members and veterans and has traveled all over the world entertaining our troops. And Brad and I had an unbelievably candid conversation about all that and so much more. He was amazingly open and unguarded when it comes to talking about his sobriety. Plus, we got into gun conversations, apocalypse conversations. I mean, we talked for a while. We even talked about his kidney stones. They're one of the very few bands that I can't decide if I love them more plugged in live and loud or completely stripped down and acoustic. 
They're fantastic both ways. And the song that made him famous, you're not going to believe when Brad wrote that. He's such a humble and down-to-earth guy, and I can't wait for you to get to know him. Allow me to introduce you to Brad Arnold from Three Doors Down. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. This is Marilyn Manson, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to. Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, Gary, how are you? Hi, Brad. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Sitting here looking out the window. What are you looking out the window at? Where are you? I, I am thankfully at my house, and I live on a farm in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, just right outside of Nashville, about 40 miles, and uh, sitting here looking at my grass, thinking how I need to go out there and cut it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you so much calling in. Um, I know that this year has been absolutely insane for everyone. It's kind of just kind of upside down, a little bit upside down this year, isn't it? I know that everybody kind of has their quarantine stories on how people have been keeping themselves occupied, but because you kind of live out on a farm, you're the kind of guy that when you're not out with three doors down, you're just kind of home mowing the lawn. That's how you've always been. So Absolutely. So nothing's really different for you except you're not touring right now. You know what? I actually, I hate, I, I was like I was saying not too long ago to somebody, I hate the reason for it. I, mean, I hate it. People are sick, and I hate their economies all shut down. And I mean, just everything about it, I hate it. But it gave me some time off, and I needed it because I always, I always have time off in like the dead of winter. And I stand out here, and I live on this farm, and it's like it used to be an old cattle farm, and uh, like all the land around here. Anytime you see a tree line, probably in the middle of that tree line is an old fence or something, you know, where it's just grown up. And those things are a challenge to cut down because you don't just like run a big cutter or something through it because there's a fence in there and it's an old school fence too. When, when steel was real steel and uh, you get in there and have to cut all that stuff out. And I look around and I, I look out there in the wintertime when I'm usually, when we're not touring as much, and I'm like, I can get out there and do it. And you walk outside and you're like, Nope, never mind. And because I mean, I just, nobody wants to work outside in the cold in wintertime. And in this, and in the, in the spring, I'm like, yeah. And I get like a couple of things done and then we start touring and the whole summer's gone because I come home occasionally and I never feel like doing it. And so this year, I actually, my yard looks better than it ever has. <laughs> <laughs> so you got that fence down. Yes. What else have you taken off of your kind of honeydew to-do list because you've had so much downtime? 
Well, I just really, I've enjoyed just being here and working around and I've got a lot of stuff done in my, cause my wife races horses, she barrel races and uh, does rodeo and stuff. So we have four horses. Um, and, uh, two of them are getting, two of them are babies. So they're getting broke right now. And so I get, a, I don't have to take care of quite as many right now, but we just get out there and we, it, we don't have kids. Our horses are like our kids and we just get out there and mess with our horses and, and work around in the arena and, and uh i love shooting and and uh kind of back in the back of our land i have a little shooting range and i just go back there and shoot my pistols and and uh get out here and be an old country boy (laughs) the last time you and i hung out we were at the palladium in worcester and we were actually talking about guns because you had snuck away to go take a class and stuff up at sig which is right here in new england and we spent a lot of time talking about that and how we both love to shoot. Yeah, that was a great, great, great time up there with the guys from SIG. And, you know, I learned a lot that day. And I had kind of been into guns, but I had to kind of, I have to kind of say something about myself and step back just a little bit to explain that, that and how it kind of helped me get more into guns than I had been in the past. I grew up around guns my whole life. I grew up in South Mississippi. Grew up in the woods, hunting, and you know, I know. I think people that are familiar with guns are a lot less fearful of guns. And I never remember like not owning one. You know, I've just always been around them, and of course, learned how to handle them safely my whole life. But I, I used to. I, I mean, I probably talked about it. Being the, I used to be a pretty bad alcoholic, and I drank for for, for better part of 15, 17 years. I, I drank a lot, and I liked shooting. But with pistols and stuff, I was not worth a flip with a like an automatic pistol because they're you know they're plastic, don't have a lot of weight to them, and uh, and so I would be like shaky. But I could shoot my revolvers really good. But those guys taught me. And I had just kind of like quit drinking. I think not too long before that when we went up there that day, and I was so my hands were so so much more steady and i never realized it before that day i was like holy crap i can shoot <laughs> and from that and it really kind of sparked something in me and my i don't i can't fit another gun in my safe let's just put it that way <laughs> <laughs> well for somebody like me i mean you talk about if you don't grow up around them i i grew up with a firefighter for a dad and the military service that was in my family was navy So firearms were really just never around. And I Uh used to be one of those people that if if one was in the room, even if it was in a uniformed police officer, just having that gun in the room freaked me out. And, Mm -hmm. And then I went as an embedded journalist to Iraq in 2006, having wow. never having never held a gun before, having never shot a gun before, and the first gun I ever touched or had to learn how to load was a 50 cal on a Humvee wow. getting ready to go on a convoy. And so, oh. like, you've done so much with the military. You know that th- there's just guns everywhere. When I came home from that trip, I was like... None of them jumped off the table and and shot me. Like, why not go and learn about them? And then I started shooting for fun, and now I love it. I do too. I do too. I mean, you know, the the scary thing about guns is somebody is somebody having one that don't know how to use them. And you know, one thing that kind of scares me right now a little bit the guns don't scare me, but 
you know, with all that's going on in our country right now, everybody's running out and buying guns. Well, I've always agreed with every, I think every citizen should own a gun. But what scares me is all these people, all they've ever seen of, a lot of these people, all they've ever seen of guns is on movies and they think the gun just shoots itself and, you know, you shoot across the room, you're, and you're going to get the guy at pistols, as you know, are very hard to shoot and hit like accurately. They're easy to fire off, but every bullet is going to hit something. You know, every single bullet is going to hit something. And so I, I really encourage all these people that have run out and bought guns and think you're Mel Gibson all of a sudden and, and lethal weapon. <laughs> They're not. You know what I'm saying? You really, you are not John Wick. You need to go practice, go get you some. And you know, I, you know what I use more than anything, and especially right now since bullets are kind of scarce and harder to find, and it's kind of hard to find this thing too. But you can find these look around eBay or Amazon or somewhere. Um, I have a little. I'm, I'm most of my pistols are nine millimeters, and uh, and so I use a little nine millimeter laser bullet, and I actually use a 380 one because it fits in the barrel a little bit better. Um, but uh, I use a little laser bullet, and I have a little target that the little targets that you have to hit to make this target light up, uh, the spot you have to hit is about as big around as a dime. I mean, maybe not even a dime. And I put it down my hallway. And at first you're like, man, that is impossible to hit, but you get to hitting it. And you're like, man, you can put somebody's eye out with a pistol. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's made me a lot better shot and just drawing and confidence and, and knowing that you're going to, you know, that you're going to hit your target, you know? But uh, yeah, I enjoy shooting a lot. Usually, people that are that enjoy shooting also have. Um, I know, like with children or with animals, you're not supposed to have a favorite. But everybody kind of has their favorite gun, whether it be a, a collector's thing or an antique or something. Do you have a favorite? I do. I have, as far as my everyday carry gun, my favorite gun that is that is probably. I tell you what, if they would have, if if Sig would have made it a couple of years ago, I'd have way less pistols. The and and I'm not just saying it because the Sig is up there. My every the gun I carry on me all the time, every day, is a Sig uh, P365. That is a awesome little pistol, and I actually have three of them because I got one when it first came out, and like got the first gen of it, and it was great, and uh and I liked it so much that I went and got my wife one, and and she prefers another little pistol that she has. But, so I have it now. I was like, well, all right, well, I'll keep it. <laughs> and I carry, but I carry appendix. So I'm a little bit leery of it having no safety. But then they came out with a model with a safety on it. So I went and got me one with a safety. And so I wound up with three of them. But that is an awesome little gun. I just love it. And it, it's just, it holds so many rounds for its size. It fits good in your hand with that extended magazine on it. And it's just a good shooting little gun. And as far as, my favorite gun that I own and the most sentimental gun that I own is Mr. Charlie Daniels gave me a 44 Magnum, uh, Henry rifle for playing his volunteer jam. Um, uh, through, I think it's been three or four years ago. And, uh, yeah, I have it in a case. I shot it twice. Just to say I shot it, but I have it in a case sitting up on top of my, uh, trophy case in my office. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things that, you know, I love that you call him Mr. Charlie Daniels, but when someone like that gives you something like that, you get a case and you mount that and you put it in a place where you can look at it every day. Absolutely. I'm sitting here looking at it right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
for anybody that's listening to the podcast that maybe doesn't like guns or know about guns, I just wanted to point one thing out. When you talk about carrying appendix, that means that you're carrying in in your front, which means that it, when you're talking about safeties, that if you don't have one, that you could shoot your nuts off. That's what you're worried about. <laughs> you really, really could. <laughs> you really, really could. <laughs> safeties are good when you're going to carry appendix. You want to keep your nuts as long as possible. Absolutely. <laughs> you brought up John Wick. Have you ever seen any of those training videos of Keanu Reeves getting ready, like the marksmanship training he's done for those movies? That dude's a badass. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like he's not. I mean, of course, he's not. He's not faking it, but it's almost like in those movies, he could, he could like pull some of that stuff off. He does you pull know? it off. If you look uh, on YouTube, his training videos. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I mean. But yeah. I mean, like some of those like scenes, it's like that might be real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, is that the same guy from Bill and Ted? Because I'm, fr- I'm afraid of him now. For real, and you know, and I, I, that he is a really, he's a really good, really good just marksman. And he seems like he. Thing about him, man, is you read all all the stuff about him, and he just seems like he'd be a cool guy too. He just seems like he'd be just a normal dude. Well, a lot of people say that about you too, Brad. Well, I'm just no redneck just playing a rock band. <laughs> <laughs> I read something about um, kryptonite. Because this year, your debut Three Doors Down record, would it, it turns 20. I, it did. I can't believe we live in a world where Kryptonite is a 20-year-old song for us. But for you, you wrote that song years before it came out in high school, right? Well, I did. I wrote that song in, like, uh, I think it was 96. And I was a senior in high school. So for me, it's, like, 24 years old. And, and uh I was looking out in the crowd not long ago. Uh, it's been, well, now it's been about a, a little over a year ago. Um, but it was one of the last shows we played. And I was looking out in the festival. And it was probably the first, at least the first 7,500 feet or, or so was just all like teenagers, all teenagers. And I, and they were just, I, they were singing that song back to me so loud. And I thought it was so funny that I said it after the song. Even I was like, you know. I said, it is great to see y'all singing this song back. I said, because this song is older than every single one of y'all. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. It amazes it, me that it was that long ago because I remember being at WAF when the song came out and when the band first came to Boston the first time. Absolutely. And y'all were one of the first stations to play us. Y'all, y'all, were, y'all were one of the first probably... I think y'all are one of the five, uh, first like five stations in the country to play us. Oh, I know that to be true for sure. Absolutely. And we sure appreciate it. And we always, I remember, I remember the first time coming up there and stuff. I remember that whole, uh, well, the, uh, the beginning after, after a little while, it kind of got a little blurry, but there in the beginning, I remember that. I mean, we just, I mean, I was only 21 years old. I just turned 21. And uh, I was, and we, you know, we never toured before we got signed. We never, like, really, honestly tried to get signed. We were just like a band out of Mississippi, and we made a demo. And we liked selling those. We had a couple of record shops around the uh, around the coast there that would sell our uh, CDs for us. And 
and you know, we when we got signed, we just got signed because the local radio station down there started playing our songs, and the record company called us wanting to sign us and had a hard time getting a hold to us because we didn't put our contact info on our CD. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rookie mistake. Nobody, no, nobody even put a phone number in there. Um, but so we had never left the coast. And when we came out touring and we came up there, I remember the first time coming to Boston and the first time coming to New York and anywhere up there. I mean, I remember the first time going through those CDs and just being like, wow. I mean, when we made our first record in Memphis, Tennessee, Memphis ain't ain't really that big of a town. I, I mean, I was like, man, I, I, I was scared to drive. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was weird. But I remember all that so much. And it seems, sometimes, in some ways, it seems like it was last week. In some ways, it seems like that was a different lifetime. I remember you and I, it was at uh, WAFs. You guys played a Halloween party for us with Nickelback. And I forget who else was on the bill. And you and I ended up at the bar at the hotel where the club was, where the party was. And we ended up just you and I at the bar talking. And you had just had surgery for like a hernia or like your appendix or you would oh, just. I had a kidney stone. Yeah. And, and we're literally sitting there talking about like your kidney stones or whatever. And I'm like, am I really sitting here having this conversation with him right now? And then <laughs> because you guys were such a new band and, and especially on my show back then, I was on the air at night. That was the show that kind of played all of the new music first. And then I remember not too long after that when Kryptonite was the biggest rock song in the country. And I was like, I spent so much time hanging out with him, talking about his kidney stones. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I it, it was hard for me to believe. And, you know, it was. And and then after Kryptonite, Loser came out. But, I mean, and I, I think I was only thinking about it just the other day of what a blessing loser was to us as a band because you know so many bands have like such a big because kryptonite wound up being the biggest song between 2000 and 2010 of any genre of music it was like the most played song on the radio for 10 years any of any of any song it's crazy how huge that song got it really really was even my friends were like dude i love that song but damn they play it all the time (laughs) (laughs) i was like i can't help it but you know that can that can that's awesome. But it can also that can be it for you. Right. And you know, then Loser came out, and it was number one at at uh, at Rock for six months. And uh, that was that really kind of got us past being like a one hit wonder. You know, we didn't never got a chance. And then Duck and Run and and Be Like That came out off that first record, and they done good. Um, but it was a blessing to have those other songs on there, or we'd have been done. We really would, I think. Well, there's a lot of bands that had that. I mean, I don't think they had a song as big as Kryptonite, obviously, but there are a lot of great bands that never got over their first song being so huge and they could just never compare to that kind of success. And then the record companies lose faith in them and they're gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then uh, when our first, I mean, our second record came out, uh, uh, we released When I'm Gone. And, you know, the military video... For that, after we didn't recorded the record and um, we'd already recorded the record, we went down to Mississippi and recorded. And you can find it on YouTube. It's around. It's a 
just if you maybe if you type in three doors down when I'm going original video or something, it'll come up. Uh, the the military video was not the original video for that song. We went down to Mississippi and recorded it, and we recorded it during. You can't tell it's a a hurricane, but it was a tropical storm going on that day, and we were down in a swamp, and it consists of us being buried alive. And I was really buried at the end of it. I'm standing in a grave up to my neck, and I was in a grave up to my neck, and I was buried. <laughs> it was not fun. But uh, so we shot the whole video for it. Um, and then we went after we uh, like a few days after we shot the video, we left and we went and done that military tour and we went over to the Persian Gulf and uh, we went and played in the on the uh, USS George Washington and played around at a few more bases in uh, through Spain and Italy and one in Bahrain and uh, and like a tent base over on the Gulf. And uh, then we came back and we're literally sitting there talking with our record company. We were in New York talking to our record company and they were like. And we're like, did the video get done while we were going? And they're like, yeah, but let me show you something. Because the guy, we had just took one dude with us to film, just document the the tour of the military guys and all. And um, came back and the record company was like, oh, let us show you something. And they played the When I'm Going video and they were like, screw that other one. This is the video right here. And uh, so we, we, we just thought it was so much more fitting for that song, to for that military video. And... Uh, and we were, and that sparked our relationship with the military, and uh, and that's probably one of my proudest things that we that we've that we've been involved with over the years. Well, that's something that you and I in in our respective careers have in common is that we have both gone overseas to visit um, our deployed troops. Obviously, Three Doors Down went over to perform for them, and for me, I got embedded as a journalist in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And I, I would really love to hear because, um, I just did a podcast episode a few weeks ago with the producer that was in Afghanistan with me. And it blows my mind that I was in Iraq 14 years ago and in Afghanistan nine years ago, because to me, those trips were so life-changing for me. And I referenced them so much, especially doing interviews like this for the podcast, that they had such a profound impact on my life and I'm really curious for you all these years later, what kind of a long-standing impact those trips had for you as a person and obviously for the band? I didn't realize what we were doing when we did it. And you look back and you're like, wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, where, where, where you stand and, you know, we didn't go, we didn't go into Afghanistan or in Iraq, but we were right there on the Persian Gulf and you're in like a tent base i mean out out there i mean you know you're not really in harm's way out there but you realize that these guys are going over there to into it you know and it it makes you realize i mean you know it's easy to sit here and kind of hear people talk about like you know freedom is it free and they they give up a lot and they do this and that but when you actually go out and and you see these guys like the tents they sleep in in the middle of a desert and and when we went over there, it was in October. And then and uh I was talking to the soldier and uh I asked her, I said, I said it was we had we played at midnight. We played at midnight because that was gonna be the coolest point of the day. And at twelve o'clock in the morning, it was a hundred degrees on the stage. And during the day it got up to like a hundred, I think it was hundred and eighteen that day. That girl told me the whole uh how did she'd seen it? 
since she'd been there was 127 degrees and she had a backpack on that was the size of me and i was like you gotta carry that around all the time he's like yeah i mean they are that's hard i mean aside from the fact that you're getting shot at potentially it's freaking hard they i mean that's hard there's a reason they all come back like ripped you know i mean those guys are over that's hard work i i I, I had more respect for them. I, I just didn't realize. And I was young when I went over. I mean, when I went on that trip, I was only like 23, 24 years old. And uh, I was, I, you know, when we played, I remember when we played on the uh, on the George Washington, um, I was 23. And the captain of the boat told me that I was older than 95% of the people on that boat. I was like, holy crap. That's insane. You know? Yeah, it's it's, and I have I, I have so much respect for him, and I just I can't say it enough. I've heard so many bands, uh, Drowning Pool, Shine Down, so many artists that have gone and played, whether it be overseas or just done military based tours, just around the country and around the world, and they talk about how there is not a more excited and grateful crowd to play in front of than if you travel a great distance to play for members of our military. Do you find that to be true? I agree with that a thousand percent. Nobody will tell you. I mean, every single is like, thank y'all for being here. I'm like, thank you for being here. Uh, I mean, it, they, you'll never meet a more appreciative bunch of people. And uh, I, I mean, I appreciate them and they're just so excited for you to be there. And it's, I mean, it's humbling. It just, it's humbling. It, I, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to wrap your head around it, kind of. And you know, for me, uh, my dad was in the Air Force, and my brother was in the Air Force, and and uh, my nephew is now. And uh, and if I wasn't in this band, I'd probably be in the Air Force. And um, uh, but you know, and I know the Air Force isn't isn't out there the same as like in Marines and in Army guys and stuff. Uh, but I've taught so many Marines and Army and Navy guys and Air Force guys too. I mean, they're definitely over there, right there with them. But um, you know, you talk to those guys that are going out and in, in, in the Humvees and stuff during the day, and and you and I can't tell you how many of them have said, "Man, we listen to y'all every day before we went out. Every day." And it's like we listen to y'all when we got back. It's like, and after so many of them telling me that, I kind of looked at it as like, in a way. That gets to be that gets to be my service. Is I it makes me kind of feel like a little bitty part of me got to be there with them and support them, you know. And it makes me so proud to know that that our music might have helped those guys in some tiny, teeny, tiny way. It makes me so proud. There is no uh, better gift givers as well because. When you go and you you play those bases, they always want you to leave with something uh, sentimental and something Absolutely. that you're going to take home with you that makes you remember them like you could ever forget them. But exactly. When you talk about the rifle that Mr. Charlie Daniels gave you that you got hanging up at home, what are some of the things that our military members have given you that you cherish? I have a uh, I have a, a very very large collection of challenge coins that we have a challenge coins that we that we finally had made that, that we can have to trade. But I, I'm standing here looking right at it because I'm standing in front of my 
trophy case. I, the most memorable thing that I've had a, a service member give me is I had a, 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 a man give me his purple heart one day and I tried not to take it. And I, I was like, man, you can't give me that. I, he's like, I want you to have it. He said, he said, your music helped me get through it and I want you to have it. And I mean, I was basically, I mean, I took it with tears in my eyes. You know, I couldn't believe that the, that the guy gave it. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at it and uh, I couldn't believe that a man gave me his purple heart. It really is. I, mean, I have a room in my house that I, I do a video show every Tuesday night um, that I call Cocktails in the War Room. And I, it, I have a room in my house where all my military stuff is, and I call it the War Room. And so I do this live video show that, by the way, I would love to have you on it. I know that you're sober. And when we have sober people on there, we do mocktails in the War Room. Oh, awesome. And I would love to have you join us via Skype after the podcast episode comes out for an after action report because one of the things that we always do in the war room is kind of go through all of the artifacts and all of the things that people have given me. And, and you know, the rule is if you ever have a cocktail in the war room or a mocktail in the war room that you got to leave something behind. So I have that same kind of collection of just these amazing challenge coins and just all of these amazing things that people have given me that have such sentimental value to me. And they're not things that you put in a box. Like you're saying, you're looking at all of this stuff right now. You want them out so that you can be reminded of those guys in that time that you were there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just for, and just for instance, you know, I don't, I don't want to put those things in the box. I, I have a, a whole display case. That has everything from my military uh, friends that have given me from on back to my childhood. So I have a He-Man <laughs> action figure in there because that's what I care about. And in, <laughs> and on into I have a or like a White House menu. We had we got to have breakfast at the White House one time. And and like a picture of me climbing in the F-16 when I got to fly with the Thunderbirds and stuff like that. And I love that kind of stuff. I love to be on the show and. And uh, and and go through some of that stuff, um, but you know, in retrospect, I have my gold record sitting on top of a on top of a shelf in here, and the rest of my black of uh, record blacks are in a closet upstairs. <laughs> I don't care. Everybody <laughs> <laughs> wants to look at that. <laughs> you know, you said something that is showing up as a trend with musicians that I'm noticing. There are so many musicians that come from military families whose dads were in the service. Really? That's awesome. Yeah, I talked to the Seether guys, and a couple of their dads uh, were military. I know Jacoby from Papa Roach was in the military. It's a really long list, and I'm, I'm really curious. I mean, when I talked to the Seether guys, we analyzed it a little bit about... Um, just what a what an ironic and strange coincidence that is that there's so many successful musicians that were raised in that kind of regimented military family. And do you tribute that kind of upbringing with maybe the work ethic that's made Three Doors Down so successful? Well, you know, you know, that's you say the work ethic. That's the that's the best way I could probably justify that being being a, a case is that you know i mean there's the perception that you know rock bands and stuff just they just like to get out there and not so much now but uh back in the early 2000s still it was very much as like rock bands just get out there and party and da, 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 da. but you know what i can't tell you like we started in 96 
And so I was graduating high school. Well, you started in 95, uh, and I graduated in 96 and stuff. And, you know, that's and you just have high, and all your friends, you have parties every night. I can't tell you how many parties I did not go to because we had band practice. We practiced all the time. We practiced like five days a week, and then we played like two nights a week. And so we basically every night. And the, uh, well, I, I say that we practice five days a week. We practice like three or four days a week because if we played Friday and Saturday night, I'd kind of have a sore throat on Sunday because you play like four hours in those bars, you know. And uh, and so we take a day off, and then we practice like every day, every day. And and it takes a lot of discipline. You know, you're having fun at practice, and it is fun, but it's not all fun. And so it does. I mean, I think that maybe that regimented lifestyle. Maybe subconsciously, uh, it teaches you the responsibilities of you. Of you have to do your, you have to learn your craft and keep on doing it. You know. Yeah, it's really strange that it's become this trend that there are so many bands that when you really start talking to them about their families and their upbringing, so many of them have military dads. It's just weird. That's awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. You talk about the early days of the band and you talk about your throat getting sore from all of the singing and all of that practice. Do you wish that back in the day you had learned how to take care of your voice probably as well as you know now? I do. I do because that was, I've smoked cigarettes for 20, I smoked cigarettes. I started smoking cigarettes when I was 13 or 14 and I smoked I turned 42 three, three days ago. Yeah, and you I and I just had birthdays. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. Thank um, you. You're very welcome. Um, I, you know, and I quit smoking when I was 40. So I smoked for 20, or when I, you know what, I quit smoking, when, yeah, when I was 40. And so I smoked for 27 years. And uh, by the grace of God, I don't think I have anything wrong. I do a bunch of cardio and, you know, just fiddling around. Ride. I love getting out and hiking and riding bikes and stuff. So I did plenty of cardio and, I don't think anything's wrong with my lungs by the grace of God. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I look in the mirror and I'm like, man, I wish I hadn't smoked for stinking 20 something years. Um, but I wish I would have taken care of myself better then, you know. But at the same time, I know I can't go back and change it. And I know that God laughs at our plans and he has us right where he wants us to be as long as we follow his will as much as we can. And, and that's about. I'm I'm satisfied with knowing that I can just learn from what I've done in the past and 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 do better going forward because I have been such an idiot in the past. But <laughs> at the same time, it's allowed me it's allowed me to help other people that that are kind of in the same spot as I've been because I firmly believe in, and I went to treatment to to stop drinking because I didn't know how I wanted to. You know, I had it in my heart. Nothing made I didn't like have some big catastrophe that made me go is just I could trace every problem in my life to drinking. And it was, it was ruining my marriage and it was ruining my life. And, 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 uh, and I needed to go to rehab and they taught me at rehab, you know, that and cause most of the counselors there are sober themselves. And because, you know, a person that's, that's been through recovery can talk to a person that needs recovery because you're not like it doesn't seem like you're like talking down to him, and you can explain to it from like eye level rather than from up here. It seems like you know, and I know that I would have because it was like that for me. My guitar player uh, Chris, he had he had eight years, and uh, and he never preached at me. He inspired me. I seen what he had, and then my drummer got sober, and he was an alcoholic, and uh, and he got sober. 
maybe a year, around a year, maybe before me, maybe a little bit less, nine months or so. And I just seen these guys happy and I seen myself miserable. And I was like, man, I want that. And they were my support team. And, and, um, and so I'm, I'm thankful that I did go through it. So it allows me to help other people. And, and, and it just gives me some, it, you can appreciate the top of the mountain when you've seen the bottom of the valley, I guess, you know? Yeah, for um, sure. And not that I was maybe at the bottom of the valley, but I was down as low as I needed to go, you know? Well, I think the industry is a lot more accepting of that now. I mean, we've seen, you know, earlier generations of, of rock stars struggle with sobriety and, you know, in the 80s, in the height of the Motley Crue, Guns N' Roses era of excess, becoming sober seemed like something you couldn't even achieve, even if you tried. But now there's so many bands and so many musicians like yourself that not only got sober, but are vocal about their struggle. And you really need to be commended for being so open and honest about it. Because it's not easy, not only to just get sober and stay sober, but to really open yourself up to inspire other people to do it. That's hard. Well, I appreciate it. But, you know, I know other people. From talking to so many people over the years, you know, you realize that no matter what our walk of life is, we're all on the same road. We're all in our own lane, you know, but we're all on the same road. And and, and it is. It's hard. But because... Society, you know, somebody said it one time about alcohol. He said it's the only drug you have to justify not doing. It's like you, when, when you don't have to stand in the bar and your buddy's like, "Hey, man, why are you snorting coke tonight?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I never heard anybody explain like, that like tonight, that. You know? <laughs> like, I never heard anyone say that before, but you are absolutely right. <laughs> it's true, and um, uh, you know, uh. It's just it's it. I was talking to somebody one day, and and he said, you know, when I go to social events, he said sometimes I just show up early. He said, just order me a drink that looks like a drink, so that I don't have to explain to anybody. But you know, I've never had to really uh, explain to too many people while I went because I think everybody's seen seen me drunk and understand why I don't. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but you know, it's just if I can if I can ever help anybody, you know, or inspire anybody because I can do it, anybody can do it, and it's just. It is just realizing that there's, I really, looking back, it's so much clearer. I wish everybody could just look back from, from four years down the road. I've got, I'll have five years in January. So from almost, almost five years down the road and just look back and be like, wow, man. And, and it's, and I think also if the, because there's some tweaks that maybe some people, some of the, some of the rehab community could maybe throw out there too. Because everybody, I hear so much, it's like, man, it's so, it's, every day is a struggle. But it is for a little while, but after a while, it's like anything, kind of gets easier. And then you kind of just like forget about it. Yeah, I don't think, I don't even think about it no more. You know, I just, I don't think, I'm, the only time I really think about it is when I'm talking to somebody about it. And, um, but I can, you know, I can be around people who are drinking or whatever, and it don't really bother me. The, um, I just, as long as, some, what, what bothers me is when I'm, when I see somebody drinking and I know has a problem and I, you know, you want to say something to them, but you don't, you can't do that. You kind of, you just, you know, you can't be that guy, but you, you just, I hate to see somebody that I know is struggling because I can see the old me in them. And it just, 
it hurt, it, it makes me hurt for them because I know what they're going through. You know. Well, that's one of the that's one of the complications that has come out of 2020 with the coronavirus is the amount of stress and the isolation that a lot of people are feeling, and there's a lot of people struggling with. Um, depression and obviously addiction because of the ripple effects of the coronavirus. You know, absolutely the depression absolutely. of the financial uncertainty, the social isolation, and that's why when I read that you had taken this time to work on this acoustic solo record, I was like, "Well, see, there you go. There's somebody that's taking what could be a really negative situation, and and could be uh, something that tempted you to drink because you were depressed that the band wasn't out on the road, or and and you're funneling it into something positive." Absolutely, um, you know, and I that that's getting right. That song was a good therapy for for me, and it it gave me somewhere to channel some energy for sure, and. You know, one of the things I did when they, they taught us at, at treatment was like, you cannot have any reservations in your heart about drinking. It can't be like, I, I hate to say this, but like, if, like if, if, if something happened to my wife or something happened to one of my parents, you know, some people are like, well, man, I just, I would drink. Well, then you're gonna, if you have that in your heart, that you have anything, any one scenario in your life that would make you drink, you're going to drink. And it don't matter what comes at me i am not gonna drink i just can't do it i break out and re- i break out in stupidity <laughs> you know what i'm saying <laughs> i just i i just i know that you know and they they teach in the 12 steps you know that we were powerless over alcohol i think it's step two or whatever i don't i don't i, I honestly don't know i'm that wonderful um uh i trust god 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 fought that battle for me too and i and then honestly I gave it to God. I knew that I could not do that by myself. I tried. I said, God, please take this away from me. And he did. And he took it from me. And I ain't never taken it back. <laughs> so that's the thing. that You just can't have the reservations about it, I think. You know, and you have to say that it's just not an option for me anymore. And, and, and you say that. And I'll, you say it long enough and it won't be. And uh, and I just firmly believe that. But I, I I'm really thankful also that I did have the kind of time to to work on that song. Cause I, it was, um, you know, with, I, I look around on social media and stuff and I just see so, so there's, when you look on all the things that they're putting on there, violence in the streets and things like that. Another thing after meeting so many people over the years, you learn that you meet so many different people, but it don't, it don't really matter when you're standing there face to face with them. We're all kind of the same. And I don't think that people get out there, and fight like that in the street unless somebody's poking them with a stick. And I think it's important to realize that there is indeed a villain in the story that's going on right now. And that's what the wicked man is talking about, you know, and it's just kind of taking, you know, and I'm not saying it's one person, but there, there are forces at work that stand to benefit from all of that. And, uh, and I think that, I, you know, I think that they're definitely there. And, and I just wanted to kind of address it in that, in that song. I've asked this question of a lot of professional musicians that have branched out away from the band um, that made them successful. What made Wicked Man a solo Brad Arnold song and not a Three Doors Down song? Um, Kind of, kind of a little bit of happenstance, I guess, a little bit. 
um, Greg had the Greg had sent me, who's my drummer, sent me that guitar idea. Probably it's been it's been a minute ago. I'd had it in my phone for a while. Um, but I kind of got that music in my head for a little bit and seeing all the stuff on on social media and, and things like that. That idea kind of got going in my head and the and the idea of lyrics started kind of snowballing and I just walk around here singing, whether it's outside in the yard or on my tractor in the shower or, or wherever. And um and that song just kind of evolved over the course of about a month. And um when I got it down, I was like, I I just really I I mean the message in the song to me was just something I wanted to say. I knew it wouldn't be a big, you know big hit or anything like that and and um but i knew that it i knew that some people would hear it and be like you know that's that, that that's right you know and and uh i just kind of wanted to just if somebody i just wanted to make people think with it a little bit you know and it was just different enough of a song though that it's like well this could be i could just do this myself and um and Chris was busy doing some other stuff at the time too. And so, and, and with everybody kind of being socially distant and everything, we have a little studio up in Hendersonville, which is um, just North of Nashville, whereas I live a little South of Nashville. And uh, so me and Greg went up there and, and got a bass player and a, and a celloist to, um, and Marshall, our, our engineer there at the studio um, got in there and worked on it for a couple of days. And those guys, done a, I got in there and sang my vocal part. Honestly, they did everything else, and <laughs> they've done such a great job on that song, and it turned out so good. Well, Three Doors Down has always been, for me, an amazing live band, but what made me love your music was having you strip it down when you guys would come into the WAF studio and just play acoustic, and you've always written all of your music acoustically first, right? Pretty much, we have, we have. Um, because I think you wind up with more substance of a song, and and you know, and like I've always said, I firmly believe that for ninety percent of songs, you know, every sometimes there's you know there's songs that just don't work, but for about ninety percent of songs, if you can't play them acoustic, there's just too much junk going, you know. And I think you should be able to to break most songs down and 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 play them acoustic, or or you just maybe need to to put some more substance there. And because I just, I mean, what's the song if you can't sit around and just play it for your friends, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, if you can't strip it down around a campfire. Exactly. I mean, you know, for the most part, it, and, you know, because some songs, even some of our heavier songs, you're like, oh, that one's not going to work. And it works. Sometimes they work better acoustic than some of them that, that are, some simple songs, when you try to play them acoustic, they get so simple that it's kind of like, okay, that's boring. But some of the uh, heavier ones, like Duck and Run, for instance, we play that song acoustic. I like, I, I love playing that song acoustic. But, you know, at first listen, you'd be like, that's not going to do so well. But Greg gets back there on his cajon, which is like a box with like, it's a wooden box, but you kind of get a little bass effect off one side and a little bit of a snare effect off the other, and he can beat the fire out of it. Um. And it just, it comes together. It sounds cool. And I really love doing those acoustic. Uh, well, we do, we've, in, in, in the last few years, we've done three different versions of just full-on acoustic tours. And I love them. I think the fans love them too. I know I do, just because it gives you a completely different experience on a song that you already know you love. 
It's it's just yeah. a different version of it, and I feel like it's so much more personal. Well, I, you know, and I'm just thinking about this right now. Um, as as per what I was reading something last night about Live Nation and about concerts coming back next year, you know, that might be an avenue of coming back because they're talking about like all concerts are going to have to be seated, very limited capacity, this and that, you know, and. When I'm sitting here listening to that, I'm talking, I'm thinking about it. I know it's not a great thought to talk about, but I'm sitting here thinking about it from a business owner standpoint, because, you know, we are at the end of the day, business owners, and we have to be able to like finance a tour. And, you know, at the, at the rate and the capacity of they're talking about like some of the venues that, that will not work for bands. They just, I mean, we won't be able to go out there and, and pay for it, but, we can go out to acoustic and play, and we can do that. And so we already do that. And so, so our our whole tour this year was a we, we had a whole whole summer and fall tour for based around our twenty year anniversary of the first record. And uh, in a perfect world, we'll just move it a calendar year to next year. But if that's still not an option next year, I am not above playing an acoustic tour because I like doing that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this year was going to be a big anniversary for you guys, obviously, the 20th anniversary of the debut Three Doors Down album. And this year would have been WAF's 50th anniversary. And one of the things that I haven't talked to you about is, you know, we, we've we been taking the blame, those of us that are in the WAF family, at starting the end of the world because WAF went off the air. Its final day was February 21st. And then just a few short weeks after that, I mean, the shit hit the fan, basically, yeah. with the world, you know? And um, because the radio station got sold and taken off the air so quickly, there were a lot of bands that we didn't get to connect with in those last few days of broadcasting that we really wanted to be able to give the bands a chance to kind of talk about those early days. And you touched on it earlier, but you were one of those musicians that references the impact of WAF, but in a grander scheme of radio and what it had an effect or what kind of an effect it had on your career. And so I wanted to kind of give you a chance to kind of talk about that a little bit. Well, radio for us, I mean, if you take away, you know, we were never a video band. We, I, I always, and I always loved radio was always our lifeblood always we were i mean you know i always talked about it like i said I always <laughs> people lo loved our songs and people love our songs but they don't know what we look like because we were a radio band and i always liked that because you know we could be really successful but i could still like go to the grocery store and nobody <laughs> nobody really knew what i looked like and stuff you know and people still don't i mean people don't really know i mean some people do but a lot of people know our songs and don't have a clue what we look like. And that's because it was radio and it's always radio. And you guys were always huge for us. You, you played every song we ever put out. And, and I, I mean, I can't tell you how much that, I mean, that is my career. I, I owe, I owe all y'all my career, you know, and, and everything that I get to do, because there's a lot, there is, I have heard a lot of good music over the years that nobody else heard because they just, they, they never got heard, you know, and you, you all allowed us 
to be heard. And, and, and in a, I mean, I never, you know, when I was a kid growing up in, in Mississippi playing music, I never thought anybody in Boston, one person in Boston would ever hear my song. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they, I like the zones, but I didn't think anybody in I can't even, hear it. I can't you know? even <laughs> pronounce the name of the town that you were born in in Mississippi. How do you pronounce that? The town I was born in is Pascagoula, Mississippi. The town I lived in is Escatapa, Mississippi. Yeah, see, I can't pronounce either one of those. <laughs> <laughs> They're both uh, Native American uh, words. And Escatapa, I think it was, uh, I think it traces back to, I think it means, River where cane was cut. It was the Escatapa River. And I think Esca means uh, uh, cane and Tapa means to cut. I think I might have that backwards. But Pascagoula was also a tribe of, uh, of Native Americans down there as well. So you learned something. Everybody says, so this podcast, could it possibly be educational? Totally is. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, growing up down there, it was really cool. You know, um, I, I think it's really quick. But growing up on the Pascagoula River, I, I was a little river rat. I was out there every every day, and uh, and the the Indians grew. Uh, they lived right along the river there, and where we kind of played there on the river, you were seven or eight miles up from the Gulf of Mexico, which is saltwater. That river's fresh, um, but where you know the river changes over the course of time, and it had cut into the bank, and there was a big like oyster uh, pile that was. If you looked at it from the river there was plenty of ground above it from sediment over time because they were like a thousand years old. They carbon dated some of this stuff at a thousand years old, but you could go up in that oyster pile and it had been a burn pile for the Escatawa, some of the Escatawa Indians there. And you could go to, and it just looked like some old oyster shells piled up there, but when you get to digging through them, you could find old pieces of Indian pottery and stuff like that, that had like carvings. And sometimes you find a piece of a handle on it stuff. I used to have a, a big old cigar box just full of that stuff. And uh, it was cool to to go back and see that kind of stuff and nobody and hold something that you knew nobody had touched for like a thousand years, you know? Wow. It was cool. Well, you talk about being that traveling musician that never imagined people from far away ever hearing your music. Where is, outside of the United States, where have you gone besides your military trips that you just absolutely loved as a country, as a city, that you loved the people and the food and the scenery and architecture? Where have you been in the world that you can't wait to go back to when you can tour again? Goodness, I, there's, I love Germany. I love going all over Germany. And, you know, it's a big, big country. And uh, I love Switzerland. I love Switzerland. I love to go back to Australia. I've only been there I've been there twice, but I only like a total of like a week. Um, and uh, and Guam was a beautiful. I know that's our territory, but that was a beautiful island. We played for the military there. Um, it's a little bitty place and not a whole lot there, but absolutely beautiful. Um, but I I look forward to go, going back to Germany. They have good food. And I just <laughs> I, I, they have they have good rock crowds too. Outside of the United States, they have they have some jam up rock crowds, and we're we're actually booking right now, trying to reestablish a, a schedule for a, a, a European tour next June, and Germany will be in there. So hopefully, because they're re, they're booking those festivals over there right now, and uh, so hopefully we'll be back. But but at the same time, I seen uh, where Markel or Merkel or whatever whatever her name is, uh, 
uh, extended their quarantine mandate or whatever for until June or something. Oh, uh, Angela Merkel, or, or you March. mean? Angela Merkel. Yes. Yeah. She she extended their uh, she extended their lockdown over there until like March. So that if we're planning on going in June, that kind of and but you know I think the thing that people don't understand really is that I've, I've read so many people like saying I'm ready to get back to concerts. I'm ready. I'm ready concerts to come back. But it's not like when you say all right, lockdown's over, we're gonna have concerts tomorrow. We plan con tours a year in advance. It takes that long. I mean. So whenever they say, oh, but, but you can't just, you can't just book a, a tour on like half faith of it might happen because you got to put down deposits and all that. And that, I mean, and it's like, it's a lot of money. And it's and not just the band. It's a whole mechanism of absolutely. trucking and flights and gear and techs and, and so coordination and promotion that's why the entertainment industry, you know, I had this conversation with the guys from Evanescence and, and Will Hunt actually said something to me that was really kind of profound. He said, America's biggest export is its culture, its music, its movies. And that's part of the reason why our entertainment industry being shut down the way that it is, is having such a profound negative impact on the economy. Because the ripple effect going to, you know, the Teamsters, the truck drivers, the techs, the electricians. I mean, the reach is endless of how it's affecting the fact that people aren't able to perform and go out on tour. If it goes any further the next summer, it's going to fall apart. I mean, people, I mean, people are moving out of Nashville in droves. People in the, you know, like techs and stuff, people that work in the industry. I mean, my tour manager said he knew four people in the entertainment industry that he knew that committed suicide in the last couple of months. And I mean, that ain't no joke, you know, that's serious stuff and people's lives falling apart. And, and like you say, with all those mechanisms and all those things, they're just sitting. That's, I mean, that all that stuff is just sitting and, and with it being threatened more and more and more and more, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it's 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 hard, you know. My salary or any any money that I would make off publishing it this year, we leave in our band so that we can pay everybody's health insurance, you know. And it's like you can't do that forever. And and by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I can say that I do this because I I love to do it. I don't have to do it, you know. And uh, that is, I thank God for that, and I thank every fan in the world for giving me that luxury. Um. But everybody else don't have that, you know. I, not a whole lot of people have that, and it's it's a bad deal. Well, one of the things that's happening, you know, for me, obviously, when WAF went off the air and I started my company and launched my own podcast and started doing all of that, all of my city friends used to make fun of me for for living in what they called the boonies, right? Because I mm-hmm. had to drive so far to get everywhere. <laughs> And you're laughing because you've always been in in the country. And and what's happening now is people that live in the cities need all that extra space for home offices and school rooms for their kids. And now everybody's moving out of the cities. And people like you and I that have been living out in the boonies this whole time are like, now you guys get it. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I cannot imagine 
and I, I mean, I know that it's it's a, a a lot, a lot, a lot of people. I can't imagine opening my door that's twenty feet from my couch and being in public. That's public, right there. You're in public. I mean, <laughs> I had to go a ways to get in public. <laughs> my driveway is is a is a quarter of a mile. Or no, is a from yeah from my from my door to my driveway. Or to, to the road and back is a half a mile. So I walk up there and back and it's a half a mile. Um, and the, I mean, in the back of my land, it just, it goes, it just goes. You get lost back there. It, well, I mean, it ain't, it ain't like thousands of acres. It's like 50 acres, but you, it, it's woods back there. And, and, and I've got lost back there for a minute, but that was, in, that was prehab. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't get lost back there anymore. But, you know, I, I'm very thankful for having – because I've stood here and been like, yeah, come, I'm tired of cutting all this grass and, and taking care of this place. I have not said that this year. I am glad to have every square inch of this. But I, I'll tell you, I read a little uh, in reference to, like, how things maybe changed. Um, I read when this kind of first started, I read a little meme that said, irony – it's people that said you don't need that many bullets buying 40 rolls of toilet paper. Yeah, <laughs> I right. I was like, yep, there's some irony for you. <laughs> I've always been a doomsday prepper. And when all of this happened, all of my friends that, again, used to think I was crazy, all of a sudden started calling me going, what do you have stockpiled in the house? What do you think we should be buying? And I was like, I've been telling you guys for years something like this could happen. At least now they don't think I'm crazy anymore. That's right. Hey, I mean, you know, it's all fun and games until the water goes off or something like that, you know? Yep. Power is one thing, but I always say it's all fun and games until the water goes off. If you're going to stack one thing somewhere in your house, have a stack of water from the floor to the ceiling, you know? Just in case. Just in case. Well, I, um, I am so grateful that you have been so generous with your time with this new endeavor. I mean, starting my company, launching my podcast, and really trying to keep the rock community in the greater Boston area and in New England together because th there isn't a place like WAF that's coming to replace what WAF was. We don't no, have I mean, a radio station that's going to play new music. And so having you be so supportive of this new endeavor that I've launched to really keep this community together up here and especially doing it during a, a pandemic, I'm just so grateful that you and all of the other musicians that I've met over the years have been so generous and so gracious with helping me um, along the way, like you always said you would. I am proud to do it. I am proud to do it. And you guys, thank you for doing what you're doing. You you all are the seat of of rock. And I mean, and, and let's be honest. They all said that rock and roll would never die. Well, this year is like, boy, uh, not doing so well. And, uh, and, and, and you all up there in the Northeast, you are the seat of rock and roll. I mean, it's not like it's out, you know, somewhere else. It's you guys. And, uh, and, we want to keep on coming up there. I mean, of course, we will keep on coming up there, and because uh, rock and roll will never die in a live setting. It might, you know, it might be other things in the media and this and that, and uh, you know, the, the way things, everything has changed. But we'll always keep on coming and doing. And and, uh, and shoot, I appreciate you being there for us. Well, I'll I'll always be here, and I look forward to you and I 
uh, bellying up to the bar to have a Coke together. And this time I'll tell you about my gallstones instead of you telling me about your kidney stones. That, hey, that's right. That sounds, that sounds good. I will tear up that Coke. <laughs> and I'm serious about the invite to come on to Cocktails in the War Room. We'll... We'll uh, make it a mocktails in the war room, but I'm sure that everybody that meets me in the war room every Tuesday night would love to go through some of that memorabilia that you got in uh, in your office and in your house. I think that would be really cool. I would love to. Brad, thank you so much. Congratulations on the release of Wicked Man. I know it's a really personal project for you, and I know I speak for every other fan out there that you know is thinking the same thing. I can't wait until you guys can get back out on the road and get back up here. Cause I can't wait to see you again. Thank you so much. We can't wait to see y'all again. And I appreciate that. I mean, I enjoyed talking with you. I enjoyed talking to you too. And you know, the podcast is always here for you and it's actually doing better than I ever imagined that it would have. And um, hey, that's awesome. I built the studio at home. And so I've turned, I basically built a radio station in my house and I'm able to kind of carry on through all this craziness and still do what I love to do. And and it's partly because people like you are being so supportive of it. So I I love you for that. And thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'd be glad to come back anytime. And and, uh, and I'd be glad to talk with you in the war room also. I would love that. Have a great rest of your day. Cool. You have a great rest of your day, too. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All righty. Bye. Seriously, how can you not love Brad Arnold from Three Doors Down? Make sure you check out the corresponding playlist that I put together. Every episode of the podcast has one. If you go to the description of this podcast, no matter what format you're listening on, there's a link to the playlist and all of the links to Brad and Three Doors Down social media pages. There's also links for my Patreon where you can get a Mistress Carrie backstage pass. And if you want to get me to record a custom Cameo video, the link is in there as well. If you haven't used Cameo before and you got somebody with a birthday, an anniversary, a gender reveal, a graduation, a retirement, whatever it is, let me help you celebrate and get a custom Cameo video from Mistress Carrie. Meet me in the War Room every Tuesday night at 8.30 live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. You never know who's going to swing by. And just announced the all-new Mistress Carrie Situation Report. Get all of your headlines in music, rock, entertainment, and everything you need to know boiled down in a podcast that's less than five minutes long. And if you liked what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss an episode of anything. And if you don't mind, give us a five-star review and make sure you leave a comment. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Points.